local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. A beautiful day shaping up here in Camos. Lots of blue sky out there. Uh, we got a packed show to bring you this morning. We're going to talk about the importance of donating blood. Uh, we're going to talk about some new mascots rolled out by Metro Vancouver down on the coast called Pee and Poo. I am not joking. We'll dive into that in a little while and why they need them at all. And uh, we'll talk about uh, soil and whether soil additives are worth their money or not. But first off, uh, some housing concerns. Real pleasure to welcome into the program this morning from the Canadian Home Builders Association Central Interior Chapter. Uh, we have the past president, uh, Matt McCurrick, and the Central Interior President, Kelly Reed. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Very good. Yourself, Shane? <laughs> yeah, we're doing good. Uh, the reason we have you in is because we have this step code thing that was brought in by the province. I, you know, I don't think we can fault the goal. Uh, it's a way to kind of build a house with some energy efficiency, uh, have some kind of code there so that we can do it in maximum energy efficiency, blah, blah, blah. But um, you guys have some concerns about this thing. Um, why don't we just lay the groundwork? You've looked at, at the uh, STEP program. It's essentially, what, five steps uh, to determine from concept to actually building a house, uh, how to make it the most energy efficient possible. Um, what's the concern? I'll start with you, Kelly. What's the concern here as far as uh, this particular step code program? Like, w what has you kind of going, eh, not so sure? There, there's a couple of really key concerns. Uh, uh, the main one is uh, how it impacts housing affordability. Uh, we're challenged right now to, uh, you know, produce houses uh, that are affordable for people to uh, buy it uh, throughout uh, our area. Uh, people are you know, struggling with the stress test and other things, and this is going to be another additional cost. Uh, so the province has indicated that by 2022, they're going to uh, implement mandatory step three. So for a 4,000 uh, square foot single family residential house, you're looking at an extra uh, cost of about $93,000. Mm. Uh, so that, that shocks us and alarms us. Yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, so that, that's the one. Yeah, Matt, I understand that, I mean, for example, the, the, latest, uh, the latest house that was given away uh, in, the, in the, I'm the, the name of the lottery, Jim, so the Y-Dream Home. Y Home, thank you, sir. I'm getting older, things are just starting to slip away now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Y-Dream Home Lottery House, brand spanking new, this thing is, is, you know, pretty crisp on the energy efficiency front, but if you apply this step code, all of a sudden the picture becomes fuzzy. Fill me in, what's the concern there? Yeah, well, we were very happy to begin with under the old matrix that the uh, step code went under it came under a step four which yeah. is incredibly high but under yeah. the new system that's just come out it's been knocked down to a to a step one and as i'm sure you've been through the house it's it's a beautiful yeah, home nice it's highly place. efficient and when you look at that home or any home that's getting built today it's it's light years away from older homes out here we look yeah. at housing right now the average house we'd equate to like a honda civic <laughs> the old homes that are out there yeah. are old Lincoln Continentals. Yeah. And so this house would be basically at Tesla level if you compare it to cars. So yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a shame. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a nice little place downtown, but it would probably be step minus seven on this particular <laughs> list. Um, okay. So uh, what do we do about this? I mean, we have this code. Again, the goal itself is laudable. I mean, we all want energy efficiency. We want to save the environment, all that stuff. Fantastic. But... Um, if the way we're getting there is not ideal, I mean, how do we how do we bridge this particular problem? So at this point, Shane, uh, it is voluntary for municipalities, and we've had uh, we've had great consultation with the uh, folks at the city. 
um, and they are they are working hard to prepare us for that 2022 goal. Yeah. Um, but they're they're struggling with some of the issues that we're struggling with, particularly this new metrics. So one of the things that we are pushing forward for and asking is that you know there would be an adjustment to the metrics, so that uh, we can still have the energy efficiency. I mean you take this uh, wide dream home it's 47 percent more efficient than what they call a reference house well that yeah. reference house is already you know a pretty solid uh you know energy use is quite uh, reasonable on it uh, you know it's like matt said it's like your honda civic yeah. it's, it's pretty efficient uh and it's 47 percent better than that and so we really think that those metrics needs to be adjusted and uh, we just think that there's also uh, potentially some other uh, methods to get to this uh, energy efficiency you know that for for smaller um, not too complex uh, buildings uh, one of the things we're looking at is is a different method of getting there that we're going to be putting a proposal forward for so it would just be a, a completely different way of doing it yeah you and i uh, we were talking off air how construction is kind of the the benchmark for the Kamloops economy we're doing pretty good right now this uh, as you guys mentioned isn't mandatory but matt if it becomes mandatory does it provide an instant gut punch to to the building out there or no yeah we, we'd say yes it's uh right now you can look at it as kelly referenced earlier homes out in campbell creek entry-level homes that are Three fifty, three hundred sixty thousand dollars. You start throwing an extra thirty thousand dollars on top of that for first-time home buyers, on top of the uh, stress test that's come out in the last year or so. It's just houses. We're doing our best, but it's becoming increasingly challenging when you have all governments preaching housing affordability. Yeah, but they're all reaching into buyers' uh, back pockets, and it's a it's a real concern that we're not going to be able to get people into homes. Yeah. It seems like everything's sort of working at cross purposes. Like it's not, it's like the two arms of the government aren't talking to each other, housing affordability, but yet over here we're kind of working counter to that. Uh, the other part of this I understand is something to do with energy advisors. I mean, if we're going to do the program, I guess we have to have these energy advisors and there is none. Yeah, so it, it, it's a fundamental shift in how we get a, a, a building permit and a house approved to be able to build. Yeah. So uh, previously, you know, the, the building code has uh, had a very prescriptive uh, method. It's, uh, it tells you uh, what the home has to have and you... Uh, submit your plans based on that and and it's uh manageable for the municipalities to work with uh, this new method is is adds several steps uh and uh, it's not just us who will be challenged by it the city i think is challenged by how they're going to um, administrate that and uh, and i think one of the one of our other concerns is that you know there's many municipalities that are now with the metrics change and other things having having challenges getting permits processed so in other words getting authorization yeah, to build yeah. homes. And uh, if we're struggling to understand it, I don't know how the general public is going to be able to uh, navigate through some of this stuff. Now, as you mentioned, not mandatory here. Have you guys reached out to city councillors and say, hey, listen, we have some concerns here. Have you reached out to any other sort of, I guess, the you know the Canadian Home Builders Association, sort of the provincial group to say, hey, we need you guys to pick this up, lobby it to the province. What's going on in either of those two fronts? I can touch on that. I'm past president of BC as well. Yeah. So... Uh, we, we've met with city councillors here, and uh, they've been, you know, we've had some good discussions. The yeah. staff really gets it because it's going to get dumped on on them. Uh, Kelowna, they were pretty aggressive to, to go down this road, but I know the CHBA down there has had a talk with them, and they've backed off a little bit. The lower mainlands, they're all in. South Island's all in. So it's a pretty complex issue for CHBA BC because... 
there are certain places, certain builders, when you start building multi-million dollar homes, there's a lot of clientele that are, sure. they're all over it. Yeah. You get into the high-end Whistlers, West Vancouver, Victoria, there, there is a market for it, but not for everyday British Columbians right now. I guess my, I mean, sort of my knee, I mean, you guys are way more in the industry than I am. I'm not out there knocking homes together, but um, my sort of knee-jerk reaction is, is there's been a lot of advancement in home building over the last several decades. So homes we're building brand new right now are probably like light years away from where they were 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, which is great. But is there a need, do you think, considering all those advancements um, to institute a step code like that? I mean, if you're building a home brand new, it's not a shanty. It's got the latest of everything, right, which I assume is more or less energy efficient, right? Yeah, so the 20, uh, 2012 building code uh, <clears throat> brought in some prescriptive uh, uh, measures around uh, uh, efficiency. And yeah. so, yeah, these homes are very efficient, Shane. You're right. The, the, the real issue, the low-hanging fruit for greenhouse gas reduction is used housing. Yeah. Um, and I think the only reason that that's not being gone after is it's, uh, you know, how do you implement that? Yeah. Uh, when we go to build a new house, we have to go through the uh, permitting process, and so that's an easy way for them to uh, grab onto that. Yeah. But uh, for sure, it's uh, the houses that are being produced in Canvas. I can say we did a we did a test study, and uh, the majority of them are the average is coming in at step two already under the prescriptive uh, method that we're building. So, uh, yeah, these are these are high performance homes <laughs> that uh, that are being built yeah. currently. Well, I go back to your, your car um, example. I mean, if you're going to try and reduce emissions and have a more efficient car, do you target the, the cutting-edge Teslas or do you target, you know, the cars that are a couple of decades older? Uh, to me, that's where the disparity is, right? I mean, shouldn't we be going after retrofitting older stock, which is the predominant amount of housing, as opposed to going after the Tesla of homes? Yeah, we couldn't agree more. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. that's the biggest problem. I mean, I think the question is how do you go into existing homes but the government managed to do it years ago on the lower mainland with the air care program right with the old polluting cars where you had to bring them up to snuff so yeah. we are a big proponent of bringing the old housing stock up to because if it's truly about carbon and, and saving the world we're all willing to do our part sure but if you're making microscopic increases to the houses right now it, it really isn't even tangible Yet there's a house across the street with single pane windows. Yeah, chances are some don't even have insulation. Yeah, and we're not even looking at them. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah, no, I hear that. Uh, last question uh, to you, Kelly, uh, and just as a little tangent off, but you mentioned permits. Uh, how are we doing here in Kamloops as far as you know issuing permits in a timely fashion? There's been, I know, in the Lower Mainland, some concern that it takes a long time. How are we doing here? Uh, we're doing a lot better than the Lower Mainland, uh, but I think the uh, the development engineering services guys are are challenged like everybody. You know, they're they're right now they have a couple of uh, positions posted, so mm. they're they're working hard to do it, and uh, we get surges. So of course you can imagine once the uh, once the weather changes in the spring, uh, everybody puts their permit in, and uh, then they have to work at processing it. So that's one of our concerns is that you know if. It, a lot of times they get a residential permit out in three to four weeks, which is excellent. Yeah. Uh, it gets busy. That gets backed up to six weeks. Uh, with this, if we implement this step code, we see that uh, being an exponential uh, increase in, in the waiting period. And, and, of course, that has an effect on the uh, housing affordability. You know, yeah. it's the, And ultimately, it's the uh, new home buyer who's going to pay for that. All right. Uh, we're out of time. Gentlemen, thanks so much for taking a bit of your morning to talk to me. 
Thanks, Shane. Thank you. And there we go. That's Kelly Reed, uh, Canadian Home Builders Association, Central Interior President and Past President of CHBABC, Matt McCurrick. I'll take a quick break here on the Whitford Show. On the other side, we'll talk about the importance of donating blood. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We've got another pair of guests here in studio to talk about the importance of giving blood. Real pleasure to welcome to the program this morning, uh, Jamie Wassing from uh, BC Emergency Health Services and uh, and Gail Voyeur, who is from uh, the Canadian Blood Services Program. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Um, blood drives are not an unfamiliar thing in the news, but uh, you, Jamie, have some personal experience here. Uh, you, uh, if I have this correctly, you were a first responder who had an accident on the job and found herself uh, in need of blood and among them, a lot of medical procedures. So uh, you're here to talk about the issue, so it must be important to you based on your experience. So tell me what, uh, what your sort of experience with the system was. Well, um, I've been a paramedic for going on 18 years, working with emergency health services. And in the fall of 2015, I was injured on the job. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, that required me to have several surgeries. And the second surgery, I had a severe complication, which led to uh, bleed in my leg. And I required me to have multiple blood transfusions. Well, that must have been a trying period in your life. Doing okay now? I am back to work. <laughs> Good. I'm back to work. Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, Gail, maybe touch on, on the need. I mean, uh, I hear all, pretty routinely out there that um, there's not enough blood being donated to cover off uh, some of these situations. Uh, what's the need out there right now? You know what? The need for blood is actually constant. Um, we always have to be replenishing the system. And so um, the blood is always there when people need it. Um, however, we just need new donors to be coming into the clinic and trying out donating for the first time, mm. as well as seasoned donors coming back and just um, booking that appointment and coming to see us at one of our donor centers. Is there a certain blood type that is in more in demand? I know I um, think I'm an O neg or something. but you know, We love you. <laughs> we love the O negative. You're the universal donor. So yeah. O negative is actually one of the ones we often call out for because you can give your blood to everybody. Um, on our website, actually, at blood.ca, we have a list of the different blood types and what our inventory is nationally across Canada. Yeah. And so you can kind of see, but actually every blood type is needed, and you don't have to know your blood type in advance of your donation appointment. Jamie, what do you think is missing in, in the equation that people aren't kind of streaming in to help? I mean, for your example, you had firsthand experience with the system. You know very personally um, why blood matters. But for maybe people out there who are... Uh, just, you know, dropping their kids off at dance practice or, you know, going to the job. Like, you know, they they maybe don't have that personal experience you do. Um, what's missing in getting the messaging out there to say, hey, listen, this is something uh, you may not think you need now, but maybe someone you know gets into trouble, maybe you get into trouble, and suddenly it matters a whole lot. Well, that, that's actually why I reached out to Gail and why I'm doing this blood drive is because I find myself fortunate and I'm I'm here celebrating after three years and looking back at my recovery and all of the things that have happened to me and I find myself being thankful to all of my friends and family co-workers neighbors my employer and all of the things that were given to me um, meals being made and people helping people driving me places but the one thing that I can't give back is the gift of blood life or limb that the blood 
Canadian Blood Services gave to me. So I find myself saying the two questions is, if you can give blood, then let's sign up and donate blood. But if you can't give blood, and there are a lot of people that can't give blood for certain reasons, yeah. then, then help out with the awareness campaign. You can volunteer your hours. You can drive a neighbor to give blood. You can spread the word. So even, even though you might not be a recipient at this moment to give blood, you can, you can do something. Everybody can do something for the blood services. Just out of curiosity, how come you can't give blood? Um, I will have my 13th surgery in June. Yeah. And um, because I am still under going under s- surgeries and I've been in res- a recipient of blood recently, Therefore that takes can. me out of oh, okay. out of the running to donate blood. Okay. Um, there might be a time down the in the future that I will be healthy enough to give blood, but at this yeah. point, that takes me out. Okay. Uh, Gail, you guys are in Kamloops today because you're, uh, you're launching the Sirens for, for Life campaign. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. It begins today, as I understand it. Yeah, it starts um, for the month of May. Um, we're basically just rallying, um, with Jamie's help, all of the emergency services up at our Oasis Church and launching the campaign to say, you know what, we, what we're asking all the emergency responders to come out and join us this month and donate, as well as we're encouraging others to donate um, this month as a way to thank those people that keep us safe every day and so the sirens for life campaign is one of those um it's awareness as well building that awareness about the people that see it firsthand every day Mm -hmm. and then also reminding the public to say you know what like jamie has said if you haven't needed it or someone you know hasn't needed it you know put in deposits before your family might need it or a friend might need it um and and consider donating any idea? Are you guys in a specific location in the city for the next little while? or? Um, today we're actually going to do our uh, launch event with okay. all of the emergency services up at Oasis Church at 1205 Rogers Way, which is where our donor centre is held each month in Kamloops. And we're basically kicking off the event with those um, groups coming out. We've got fire, police, ambulance, corrections, sheriffs um, all joining us. And we're basically just going to kick it off with all of the people we've asked for support from and then... The idea is just really to get the public to rally around all of those people as a way to kind of, you know, just surround them and say, you know what, I'm going to do it too, just because we want to support the work you do every day. Yeah, I guess what I was at, because it runs for what, a month or so? Or? It does. It yeah. runs for the month of May. So I was just wondering if there's a specific location or a way that during the campaign, if people want to donate blood, where they can kind of reach out, whether it's a phone number or a physical location they can go down to or whatever the deal is. Absolutely. So our, our clinic in um, Kamloops is actually every month. So yeah. it's May 20th, 21st, and 22nd up at the Oasis Church. Okay. Um, we set up our donor center there and they can book online at blood.ca or 1882-DONATE and they can book an appointment in advance um, and just also check their eligibility online. If they're not sure if they're eligible or haven't checked for a couple of years, just either call the number 1882-DONATE or look online and take our eligibility quiz before booking their appointment. That would and be amazing. Maybe final word to you, Jamie, just for people who are listening right now, what's your message to them as far as awareness and, and donating blood? I guess my my message would be, if you can donate, please come out and donate. And if you can't donate, just continue the awareness campaign. Okay. And how are you doing? Are you doing okay? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, That's uh, Jamie uh, Wasink and Gail Voyer. Jamie is with the BC Emergency Health Services, as you heard. uh, First-hand personal experience with needing donated blood. And Gail Voyer is with Canadian Blood Services, launching the Sirens for Life campaign to uh, increase awareness and actual blood donations. If you can help out please do so. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of new mascots for Metro Vancouver. Their names are P and Poo. Next.
Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. A real pleasure to welcome to the program this morning uh, from Communications at Metro Vancouver down the lower mainland, Lorena Lopez. How are you? Good. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're uh, glad to have you on. Uh, The reason we're having you on is because there's been uh, an outpouring of social media reaction uh, to a couple of new mascots, which the regional district down there has debuted. Uh, and they are called Pee and Poo, and uh, that is indeed their name. Uh, but uh, while a lot of people are poking fun at these mascots, Lorena, uh, the issue, the reason that you've put them out there is is no laughing matter. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, this is it's part of our Unflushables campaign. We're in the third year of having this campaign where we're bringing it across the, uh, the region, talking about the fact that there are clogs in our sewer systems, damaging pumping equipment, and a lot of unwanted substances also going into our environment. Um, because of some of our worst offenders, there are seven of them, wipes, dental floss, hair, paper towel, tampons, and applicators, and condoms. And so we call these our unflushables. And we just thought um, it would be, in, in order to cut through the clutter and get people's attention on this matter, um, we, we wanted to also emphasize the three things that are allowed to go in your toilet, and those are pee-poo and toilet paper. So bringing those mascots to events and bringing them to the residents has really got people uh, talking about the issue that they wouldn't otherwise talk about. Yeah. What's the cause? I mean, I'm, I'm not unaware of the issue. I remember discussing this years ago with, uh, with then-board chair Greg Moore, but... Uh, this mm. is an issue I've seen actually around the world as well, but we see these mm-hmm. kind of, you know, people equate them to different sizes. I remember there was a school bus size kind of clog mm-hmm. over in the UK at one point and Metro Vancouver, they equated it to some other size back in the day, but they're, they're mm-hmm. genuine clogs of stuff in the sewer system. Uh, mm-hmm. and then you guys got to go in and find them and unclog them. And I imagine that mm-hmm. comes at a significant cost as well as time and effort. Absolutely. Um, a lot of that is also due to people putting grease down their drains, but the combination of all these unflushables plus grease down grains is costing at least our region alone hundreds of thousands of dollars to declog regional pump stations and then hundreds of thousands on top of that to replace damaged equipment. Uh, additional costs are then borne by our member municipalities and then, of course, directly to residents when their private plumbing's pubbed, uh, plugged. So. You know, and, and then across the, across the actual country, we know that it's about a $250 million issue affecting our wastewater infra- infrastructure. So uh, what do you think of the social media reaction? There's a, there's a lot of people are kind of laughing at it or poking some fun at it, and there's others who are uh, upset that any money at all was spent on, on mascots named Pee and Poo. What's your take as you watch it all unfold? Well, when we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars that are being incurred to taxpayers as a result of uh, the behavior of putting the wrong things down their toilets, I think that um, we are actually getting people to talk about an issue that either they don't talk about or are not aware of. So uh, with the thousands of people in outpouring on social media, I think it's nothing but a positive thing because even if they're kind of why, why is there a pee and poo and like if they, that kind of irks them, there's still the fact that they're talking about it. So next time they go and put their hair or their, or their uh, you know, other on flushable items down the toilet, maybe they'll think about us. So um, it's, it's a win-win for us. The, uh, the mascot's uh, expense compared to the hundreds of thousands of dollars it's a, that's impacting the system and taxpayers is, is uh, 
and measurable. Can you shed some light on, on what the process that kind of, you know, there must have been a series of meetings uh, to say, okay, listen, we've got this issue. Uh, it's frustrating. It's costing us a lot of money, uh, but we also need to get a message out there. How did you arrive mm -hmm. at these two mascots? Like, what was the process behind it? Well, we um, we just started with the fact that we have a really creative uh, communications team here. We have over 10 behavior change campaigns that we put out through the year uh, based on water conservation, solid waste matters, as well as source control issues. So we're constantly trying to come up with creative and innovative ways for people to um, hear our message. And so it wasn't difficult to explain that. You know, we've, this is our third year of the campaign. We really want to make an impact this year uh, with people recognizing uh, the, the issue. So um, it was just a creative way. When, you know, we're, we're getting some really great use out of these mascots. We have uh, several events already confirmed, uh, community events that we're going to, as well as some others lined up throughout the summer, and summer where we get to talk to, again, thousands of people about the issue. So uh, we're, we're really happy uh, to be able to have gotten the attention that this really serious issue for, for member many member municipalities have across our country. Did you have to do uh, did you have to hire some people to kind of jump into the suits? I'm just wondering what a what a what a job posting <coughs> would look like for two people to go into pee and poo suits. Yeah. <laughs> well we, we do have a uh, uh, we work with a, a company that um, there's many, you know, I mean, you probably all see outreach across the uh, people, you know, whether they're giving out promotional products or flyers or whatnot. So we hired a, a group that is uh, trained in doing those kinds of things. What other avenues do you have available to you? I mean, obviously the messaging is super serious, uh, whether people want to poke fun at this particular avenue mm -hmm. or not. But um, what other messaging do you have? And and, and uh, this problem has been around for a couple of years. Is it getting worse? Is it getting better already? I mean, give me a, give me an idea. I mean, when we have our, our mascots out, we obviously have our representatives uh, there as well to talk about the serious issues and to be able to talk about, show them the system so that people can start understanding the complexity of it. Um, it has improved over the years um, to some extent, but not, uh, you know, again, quite uh, evenly considering uh, the population growth. So every year we have over 30,000 people come to Metro Vancouver. Um, again, we have to educate, re-educate, um, and uh, it, it's, it's a constant problem. We're also trying to do some measurement at our systems. That's not necessarily an easy, um, you know, tracking system to, to, to watch, but we're, we're working on it with our liquid waste, uh, liquid waste control staff to see uh, if they're seeing a difference in the system in terms of what they have to pull out. Right. Is, is there um, a chatter behind the scenes of, of sort of an enforcement tool? I mean, if people are flushing all sorts, I don't know how you'd catch them at it, number one. But um, mm -hmm. other than just pure messaging, like putting up billboards and throwing out the pee yeah. and poo mascots and talking to people, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't, I mean, other ways, you know, other activities are often sort of, um, you know, there's, you know, speeding, like all that kind of, there's, there's, a, there's an enforcement aspect to change people's behaviors and most other issues. I don't know how you do that, but has there yeah. been any thought given to that? that part of it or no? Well, no, I mean, that's what the challenge of this uh, behavior change campaign is, which is why we had to push the envelope a bit and, and, and do something different because it happens in the privacy of your home, um, especially when, and then it's even more con uh, confusing for a resident who goes and buys these flushable wipes and then they put that in there and then they, they think that flushable is okay and it's not. Um, there's a lot of work being done across the 
country with the Canadian wastewater industry and uh, member municipalities around how to specify the word flushable. There's done research down at the Ryerson University that's come out that uh, has really tested that actually of 101 products that they tested, only 11 were labeled that were all labeled as flushable. Only 11 actually truly were, and even those were ones that were actually toilet paper based. So there's a lot of work being done across the country right now um, to deal with the issue of the word flushable. But as you said, the problem is difficult because it happens in the privacy of your home. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so next steps on PMPU, you said you got them scheduled for, for a number of different events. We're going to continue to see the pair? Yeah, we've got uh, in our, some of the municipalities down here, we've got a, events lined up in Richmond and Surrey and Coquitlam, uh, a few others that are, are to be confirmed. Um, and it's, uh, you know, when we're there, well, like I said, we have our display up, we have our we also hand out branded toilet paper with our flushables, unflushables characters on them. We have representatives that hand them that after they answer a skill testing question about what shouldn't go down the toilet. And so then they walk away with that real, uh, real education. They bring home the branded toilet paper to their family and friends and go, yeah, this is what I was taught today. So it is a really great opportunity to uh, educate in a fun way so that people don't feel like they're being shamed or you can't do this can't do that but they walk away going okay i know now what i shouldn't be doing and i was told in a really fun light-hearted way i'm just curious have you heard from other regional districts on this issue i mean i know metro vancouver uh has a lot of people in it as compared to some of the other regional districts around the province yeah. including our own tnrd but has there been communication amongst the regional districts on this particular issue yeah we have um <clears throat> there's wastewater uh, associations of which we're all part of and we've already had a few that have reached out to us since some of the um public uh publicity around it so we're looking forward to working with um them it is a national well it's an international issue um but we are work, uh, absolutely happy to um, work with them and, and share any of our ideas and concepts and creative and, and uh, make sure that people across the country understand that this is an issue. Well, uh, it's certainly uh, worth chatting about what we flush and what we shouldn't be flushing. Uh, Lorena, thanks so much for taking some time to chat. Yeah, thank you, Shane. And that was Lorena Lopez with Corporate Communications at Metro Vancouver down the Lower Mainland talking about two new mascots to address the issue of big clogs and sewer pipes because people are flushing a whole lot of stuff they shouldn't be to address the problem. They've unveiled two mascots called Pee and Pooh. I kid you not. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll uh, touch base with the UBC Okanagan campus in a rather interesting study. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Real pleasure to welcome the program this morning. Uh, teacher of biology, UBC's Okanagan campus, also UBC researcher, Miranda Hart. Good morning, Miranda. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you have published an interesting study, and you've examined the use of uh, uh, additives or biofertilizers to the soil, a, a practice that's become uh, more or less common for in the agriculture industry out there. And uh, if I understand your study correctly, uh, these things may be doing more harm than good. What did you find? Um, well, it's actually bigger than just agriculture. I think everyone who's listening who buys soil 
from Rona or whatever is probably adding these organisms to the garden. So it's, it's happening on a huge scale. And, and I think it's something that we really need to think about. Um, my study was looking at it in an agricultural context. And um, well, we found that you just can't predict when they're going to work. Sometimes you add them to your soil and they do absolutely nothing. And sometimes you add them to your soil and they take off and they take over and they replace everything that is in the soil, which is also kind of scary. If they're not doing much of anything, then, then how did the practice sort of become so widespread? Is it just a purely industry-driven thing, or, or what's going um, on? It's, it's capitalism. I mean, it's a way these companies are making a lot of money, but there's just the science behind it hasn't caught up. So we were in a situation where people have been producing these inoculants for decades now, and yet the research has not been done to even show that they establish or they even work at all so it's it's a big problem you mentioned in your study there could be environmental consequences of these things maybe expand on that what does that mean yeah that's the kind of what i'm mostly interested in i mean of course they want to help farmers save their money right if they don't need to buy this stuff they shouldn't but the other side of the story is our ecosystems right i mean these are invasive species so when they work it's good for our crops and it might be good for our gardens but what does it mean for our natural ecosystems and we know from other examples invasive species are are real um environmental threats so if we add these invasive species and they get into our soils what are they doing are they changing the functioning are they going to change the plant communities that are able to grow there we just don't know any of these answers yeah it sounds like a pretty complex problem. Now, uh, as I understand it, these things were sort of introduced to kind of start a green agricultural wave. You get away from pesticides and that kind yeah. of thing, which is, you know, okay, uh, that goal is not uh, not entirely unworthy. But if these things aren't working, and uh, then 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 what would? Well, you know, I think I, you know, it's a good idea to get away from these kind of industrial produced pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers, whether or not microbes can replace them entirely is doubtful, but whether or not we can help become more sustainable using them, maybe, maybe, but we need to do the research. I mean, clearly microbes are good for soil, right? We know that they're really, really important. Whether or not we know enough about how they work in soil ecosystems to be able to produce them and add them, that's not clear. I think, you know, I've, I've been doing this research long enough. I think there are situations where they can be extremely useful and really beneficial. Like, for example, when you've completely destroyed your soil through, like, mining or, um, you know, overusing the soil and there's no native microbes left. Yeah, maybe that makes sense. But, and, you know, you got to learn how to control them before we release them into the environment. That's what I think. Yeah, and to touch on that, because it caught my eye that uh, uh, in the study you, you look at uh, various different soils and stuff, and in some cases they did nothing. In some cases, as you mentioned earlier, they spread like wildfire and took over. Uh, it seems like we don't have a firm understanding, as, as you just said, about what they do in any given circumstance. So uh, how do we get to a place where, A, there's awareness that this may not be the best thing, and B, uh, the ability to examine, um, you know, land somewhere and say, okay, no, we, we can't because we've we put these parameters on it. Uh, this is out of the question. Or, you know what, this might actually be useful here. How do we get to that place? Um, we're kind of far away. The problem is it's really hard to study these systems, right, because these are microscopic organisms. 
really hard, like even adding an inoculant or biofertilizer, being able to tell that it established, it's not something that just anyone can do. I mean, it took my lab five years to develop the molecular tool to be able to do that. Um, so it's really difficult. It's really expensive. So there's nothing that a farmer is going to be able to look at the land and say, yeah, we need, we need inoculants here. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think we just need to learn more about soil ecosystems in general to find out what we can do. I mean, my research program also looks at using plants to manipulate soil microorganisms. And I think that's something that is probably safer and, and more sustainable in the long term is to make sure we just treat our soils really well and do everything we can to encourage them to naturally be biodiverse ecosystems. Because ultimately, I think that's our goal. So maybe to break it down into a smaller chunk, I mean, uh, your study has raised some serious questions. On an awareness level alone, uh, that's the first step. How do you continue that conversation so that uh, the people and farmers and uh, everyone involved in this thing begins to understand the impacts here and informs themselves? Well, I think a big step that's needed is we have to regulate these products. And I'm... I'm trying to force the industry, I'm trying to force the scientific community towards that direction. They're completely unregulated, right? So they don't have to prove they're efficacious. They don't have to prove that they're an environmental, not an environmental threat. We need to regulate these products like we regulate other, other um, industries. So that's the first step. And if we can start to regulate them, then the science that we need to understand them and use them effectively will follow, I think. But right now we're working with no regulations whatsoever. Is there any chance or is there any movement so far to, to take the, the, the um, issue to the federal government and get that regulation? Um, I'm trying. <laughs> it's not easy. I mean, um, there's a lot of money in this industry right now. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm starting to, uh, I'm getting uh, scientists on board, right? And I think if there's enough of a reaction from scientists that this is not a good practice, I think that will help my my case. But, yeah, it's a, it's a long battle I'm preparing for. <laughs> Is that essentially the problem here, Miranda, that, that we have an industry and some companies that have uh, seized onto this? Uh, I assume they're making some kind of healthy profits over it. And, yeah. uh, you know, being talked out of sort of unwinding that is probably not going to be met with a lot of reception there. No, I mean, no, nobody wants that, right? But I think it's not fair to the consumers and it's not fair to our ecosystems. I, I mean, I'm not saying that this is a terrible industry and that we should destroy it. No, I'm saying we need to understand it and we need to be able to regulate it in a way that makes sense for all the users, right? All the end users. And whether or not that's a farmer who just doesn't want to waste their money or if it's someone who's interested in ecosystem integrity, we need, we just need to regulate it. And to do that, we need more science. So, it's not going to be a quick fix, that's for sure. Do we have any understanding right now of the long term? I mean, you, you had, what, a five or six years to, to kind of look at this thing. Yeah. What yeah. about 10, no, 20, uh, what about 30, 40, 50? I mean, that's the, that's the ticket, right? We really want to know what happens over the long term. We don't even know, though, what happens over the long term just with basic soil practices. Like our ability to know what happens with soil biota is so... Um, new we haven't been able to do it because we haven't had the technology now we have the technology but we're just starting in the last 10 years going forward so we just i mean it's kind of like the, the last frontier soil right people talk about the oceans and the space as the final frontiers but we know 
so little about how our soil ecosystems work, and yet our society and our culture is completely dependent on them. I mean, if we lose our soil biodiversity, we lose our societies. We can't eat. So it's important, and that's I guess that's the point. I want people to understand how important it is to protect soil biodiversity. Rhonda, Taya, thanks so much for taking a few minutes of your day to chat with us about this important issue. Oh, no, thanks for having me. That's Miranda Hart. She teaches biology at UBC's Okanagan campus, also a UBC researcher. Her latest study questioning whether soil additives are really worth their while. And that's it for today's Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow, although the name of the show changes Inside Politics coming your way Friday morning. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Ebola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.